see how they run starts out as a fleet comic mystery, but it quickly loses its fizz and turns into flat champagne. That's right, had a good meeting with Bimmel, and the budget is being increased. More sound effects coming here to Cinephile. Our new movie, <laughs> See How They Run. Our old movie, Breathless. Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah, cheering Bimmel. Okay, good job. Uh, Breathless is our old movie. The great filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard passed away last Monday. Chris and I were taping on Monday. I knew that Godard passed away. Gentleman Frank tweeted me. I said, no, no I, I'm aware. So I wanted to rewatch Breathless. Breathless is available, by the way, on HBO Max. You guys all know. I'm going nuts about the TCM available there. Turner Classic Movies on HBO Max. You can find Breathless there. I will talk about the Godard classic. And also, for our wild card, you're going to love this guy, Stephen Galloway. He's British, and he's really funny, and he's written an exceptional book. It's one of the best books I've read this year. It's called Truly, Madly, Vivian Lee, Lawrence Olivier, and the Romance of the Century. He's got incredible stories. Vivian Lee, of course, the star of Gone with the Wind and A Streetcar Named Desire. Olivier, the greatest Shakespearean actor of all time. Crazy affair that they had. Just all sorts of stuff. Bipolar, mental issues, uh, affairs with 18-year-olds, people showing up with socks around their testicles, people naked at parties. As Chris said to me, there's lots of salacious material, so you're going to (laughs) definitely want to enjoy this interview. Um, We start off first and foremost with something I have not done in three years. Cody, take a guess. What's something that I have not done in three years? (sighs) Gone swimming. Good guess. Went to the library. I, 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 I went and got a library card here in Ho-Ho because I had to go to the library because my son, uh, one of the books he had left at school, which he had to read for school. So my wife was like, why don't you go to the library? I'm sure they have like, you know, kids books there. I'm like, eh, kind of a small town. But yes, went to the library, picked it up. And that's where I found Truly Madly. As I was scanning the books for a book for myself, I said, what's this Truly Madly book? Stephen Gall, I've heard of him, film professor. Yes, open it up. I go, oh my God. First few pages I start reading out, this book's incredible. So that's why Stephen Galloway is our guest today because I went to the library. I picked up his book, 14 Day Long. So you kind of feel a bit of pressure on yourself. Like, oh my God, I got four. So I finished it in seven days. I'm like, okay, I got to finish this book. But it was outstanding. I wish I could have finished it in three days. Then Mike Ryan, of course, the Dan Levitard show, said, you're going to love this book. Cody had texted me, have you heard of The Castle on Sunset? I said, no. Then Mike follows up, goes, oh, it's life, death, love, art, scandal, Hollywood, Chateau, Marmont. I go, I've heard of that book. That's right. Old stories because you're going to love it. So I picked this up from the library. All right. So there we go. The Chateau, the last castle on Sunset. This is like 325 pages, so... You're actually going to read it, though. Mike just listens so to he's it. He's an audiobook guy. Yeah. Dude, here's the thing. Do you think more people... Are, are we now at the point more people read books or listen to books? I would say still people read them more, but obviously I think more... It's like podcasting, yes. right? More and more every year. Like, the gap is going to keep yeah, shrinking. Good point. A little bit of shrinkage right now. Speaking of uh, the gap, um, <laughs> you know, when I think about people reading books versus listening to books, it's like people watching cable versus streaming. So, DirecTV, I called up this week. I said, listen, I've been a loyal customer all these years. Uh, I had the NFL package last year for free. He's like, okay. And by the way, he had to look it up. He was like, let me just verify that. I'm like, well, I'm not lying. Yes, you gave me the free NFL package. I said, I'm wondering if I can get it for free again. He's like, what do you mean? I said, I've been with DirecTV for 12 years. After 11 years, you gave me NFL Sunday ticket with Red Zone. He's like, yes. I got that was totally free last year. I got to watch every Eagles game. He's like, yeah. I go, so I'm, I'm just wondering, do I get that again? And he goes, no. I said, so you rewarded me after 11 years of loyal service, but you're not rewarding me after 12 years of loyal service. And I said, well, no, after 11 years of loyal service, you got the free NFL Sunday ticket. Now it's year 12. I go, so I don't have a reward for being rewarded. He goes, no, it's like being married for 20 years. You get a wedding. What do you get for 21st? I'm like, I would get another gift. I mean, I, I would think I would be able to get this. I go, okay, how much is NFL Sunday ticket? He goes, $395. I go, you think I'm going to pay 400 bucks to watch football? Like, I'm already going to get Giants and Jets, sadly. Although, the Giants off to 2-0 start. The Eagles, I live close enough to Philadelphia. I'm still going to get Philly games, generally speaking. Monday night or this weekend against the Vikings. Why am I going to pay 400 bucks for this? 
I said, you're going from a customer loyalty program to pissing me off. He said, well, we gave you a gift in the first place. I go, well, thanks for the gift. You should double down on the gift. I think, Cody, the reason why he wasn't doing it is because Sunday Ticket is leaving DirecTV after this year. So they know they're going to lose this valuable property anyways. Might as well gouge people while they can. Long way of saying, do you have Sunday Ticket? I have Comcast, so I do not have Sunday Ticket. I saw the Twitter. People were freaking out when it wasn't working. Maybe they're just punting on all the mechanics of it since they're losing it. They're just like, hey, we're going to lose this thing soon, so who cares? It could just be we just don't care anymore. So if that's the case, whatever. Do what you got to do. So on Comcast, you have just the Dolphins game or like local games? No, 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 I uh, I get the Red Zone channel and the local game. Yeah, yeah, I I cannot watch every single game, but I got Red Zone channel, and my TV doesn't go out when it rains. So that's that's the main reason. That is a big win for you. I can't stand being at someone's house with direct tv and it's like oh this i'm so excited for this game and then it starts raining and it's like that black screen where it's just like okay good thing Last we're here year we did emmy awards and i neglected to mention the fact the best drama award which went to succession cable went out heavy rain here in the jersey area so i knew succession was going to win i googled and saw it won but yes you're right that the perils of the weather sometimes impacting direct tv is a downside anyways uh, one other thought here, of course, I was crestfallen. As I was going to meet our boss, Bimmel, is when I got the news that Federer was retiring. I almost drove, like, literally into oncoming traffic. I'm like, oh, my God, I was not expecting this. And Bimmel has no idea what a big Federer fan I am. So he actually opened the conversation with it. Like, we get there, I'm like, okay, I'll get uh, steak and eggs. He gets whatever he gets. And I said, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. No, no, I got to pay. My wife says, you should let him pay. Like, he's the corporate guy. He can expense it. I go, no, no. You I paid? Because I said, no, no, I oh. suggested the breakfast. He didn't want to meet with me. I said, I'd like to meet with you. He goes, sure, no problem. So if I'm initiating, I got to pay. She goes, no, but he's... <sighs> but in a social setting, 1,000%. Business meeting, let that company pay. She was upset with me. Doing. She goes, when you saw Skipper, who paid? I go, he did. I go, but I go, John had solicited yeah. me. He goes, I'd like to meet with you sometimes. She goes, no, that's not the way it works. If it's a business meeting, you let them. You can pretend, oh, I got it, I got it. Do the alligator arms, but trust me, he's going to pay. I'm like, okay, regardless. <laughs> so obviously, I'm crestfallen. Your wife yeah, gets I'm crestfallen it. over Federer. But Howard Bryant reached out to me. I love Howard Bryant. I've never, never. Making the rounds. I know. Like I never had a conversation with Howard Bryant ever. Like, I love his work. He follows me. I follow him. He DM me. He goes, yo, I know how much you love Fed. We got to talk Fed. I'm like, I'm in. So there's a podcast coming out this week, Metal Arc 47. And every episode... The Metal Arkers, right? right? I believe it's usually yes, Thursday. So yeah. Metal Arkers, it's me and Brian. And he goes, you and Koppelman. And I go, the only Koppelman I know is Brian Koppelman, who is the guy who does Billions. And I loved him on Bill Simmons' Rewatchables podcast, talking about misery. And he also wrote Rounders. So I'm like, I'm thinking it's the same Koppelman. So we pop up. Uh, Chris Winningham, of course, is producing. And I'm like, yeah, that's Koppelman. So anyway, I go, hey... Loved your podcast on Misery. He's like, oh, girl, I have another good one coming out with Simmons. I'm like, oh, cool. He's a fan of our show. That's one of the, like, he's a famous person that follows me yeah. even. Like, I remember when I saw he followed me, I was like, what? Huge tennis guy. I mean, I mean, obviously, I, I can hold my own, but these guys were like nerdy tennis guys. They're talking about footwork and racket types and brands and development and Borg McEnroe. And I'm like, oh, my God, you guys are talking about strings. I'm like, <laughs> this, this was a next level conversation. I'm also appearing with Stugatz. I do not believe we're going to have that type of intellectual tennis conversation, but... <laughs> Stu did reach out to me and Billy, so we'd like to have you on to talk Federer. So check me out on Stupidity this week and Metal Arkers, two other podcasts just talking about Roger Federer. That's coming up this week, as I am, Cody said, making the rounds. I feel like, a, like I've got a project out. I've got to, I've got to hype it up on all the different podcasts. Yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> let's get through this. See How They Run, which is the new film right now in theaters. In the West End of 1950s London, plans for a movie version of a smash hit play come to an abrupt halt after a pivotal member of the crew is murdered. It's directed by Tom George and written by Mark 
Chaplet stars the great Sam Rockwell as uh, Claire Atkins, and I went and ventured to go see him in uh, David Mamet's American Buffalo. We love Rockwell, so I had to go see it just for Sam. He's terrific in it. As a British accent, he was on, I believe, Kimmel this week, wearing a very nice green suit. And he said, how'd you get the accent down? He goes, Martin Freeman, who's a fellow actor, he goes, I got him to say most of the lines into a tape recorder, and then I listened to it, and then I asked him to do different accents. I go, can you do like a West End accent and like a Cockney accent? He's like, yeah, sure. So I just listened to that. I tried to get the accent down. It was great. And he's really funny. You know, he's charming. He's also plays a drunk, which Kimmel asked him, how do you play drunk? And he goes, well, there's different kind of tricks you do. He goes, when you, you kind of just morph your body. So if you're talking to somebody, you turn your body the other way and then look at them and it kind of makes you a little bit off. He also said, the great Ray Liotta once told him this trick. Ray Liotta said, if you're standing right before they call action, what you do is you put your head all the way down to your hips, hold hmm. it for like 10 seconds. And when they say action, lift your head up and it's going to give you a kind of a, kind of a kick there, screw up your equilibrium and it'll make you look like you're drunk. So he was like, wow, huh. make a trick. There. Whenever you want to be, you know, you're at a party, pretend like you're drunk, you don't want to drink, put your head down, jerk it up, and you'll feel, or at least look like you're a little bit drunk. Anyways, I wish that was as entertaining as the movie was, but the movie was all right. It, you have to love these, you know, murder mystery types. You know, Kenneth Branagh's doing a lot of these now, making it into a factory production. Adrian Brody plays the main character, or at least the main character you think it is, off the top, played Leo Kopernik, and he's kind of telling the life story, and then boom, he gets whacked. So the murder mystery is about his character, and then you see him in flashbacks. So you think of great movies. By the way, a sunset Boulevard, a film that Mike Ryan told me he loves, which I, of course, adore, Joseph Cotton. That movie starts out with a dead guy floating in a pool, and you hear narration, and the narration is of the dead guy. So this is you know, a classic conceit of seeing a dead person saying, oh, let me tell you the story of my life, and then you go back on that story. Sunset Boulevard came out in 1950, and here we are in 2022 trying that same kind of gimmick. But I love Rockwell. Um, you know, Sir Sharon does a good job playing his co-lead, but I just didn't find the story particularly charming or as funny as I was hoping it would be. I thought it was a fairly run-of-the-mill murder mystery, a bit of a letdown overall. And to be honest, when you actually get to the end of a murder mystery, you have to hope that the ending rewards the patience of the journey, meaning you go, oh my God, I didn't think that could be the killer. What happened there? But uh, listen, a few laughs, some good acting, decent writing, but overall a letdown. Like it was, it was not a strong whodunit. If you're looking for a good whodunit, this was not a strong whodunit. But who did it? Sam Rockwell did, so that's why I went and saw it. Neil Minow of RogerEbert.com, since the movie is exceptionally well cast and stylishly filmed, I thought it was a hoot. And Matt Hudson, what I watched tonight, despite some solid directorial flourishes from George, a decent initial setup and lead pairing can't compensate for a story that limps to a mediocre conclusion. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. Uh, sadly, I was not really fired up for See How They Run. All right, one more. We're going to talk about an old movie this week, which is Breathless. A small-time thief steals a car and impulsively murders a motorcycle policeman. Wanted by the authorities, he reunites with a hip American journalism student and attempts to persuade her to run away with him to Italy. It's a very, very famous film from 1960. It's called Breathless, and it's written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Jean-Luc Godard passed away at the age of 91, one of the great filmmakers ever, and he's not only influential as part of the French New Wave with Francois Truffaut, but also very influential as a film critic. So for those who aren't aware, the French New Wave, these guys were film critics back in the day. Then they themselves ended up becoming major filmmakers. Scott Rogowski coming soon. Rags time will be coming back to Cinephile. He's currently in Iceland, but he will be coming back. One time we were talking world <laughs> cinema and Rags did tell me he's a huge Truffaut fan. I said, well, I'm more of a Godard guy, but anyways, well, maybe we'll talk Truffaut when he's back. By the way, he's loving Iceland. I did say to him as an aside, only white people go to Iceland and now apparently Jews. And he said, what do you mean? I go, I, I, don't, I don't know anybody in me, my family that want to go. I, I have other friends of color. I've never heard one of them say, I love to check out Iceland. Like, no, I'd like to go to Barcelona. You know, I'd like to go to Wimbledon. I want to go see Federer. I'd like to go to Brazil. I, those are places that just, I'd like to go to Italy, you know, France, whatever. I'd like to actually kind of go to Russia one day, which makes people like, eh. but I'm like, I think St. Petersburg, I love the architecture. I've never once said to myself, Iceland would be an awesome place to visit. You, Chris Cody, do you have any interest in Iceland? Only after D2 Mighty Ducks. <laughs> 
Rosillo just went to the goalie. <laughs> the goalie. I now know two. I have two friends who've been to Iceland. Rosillo went this summer. Of all the places, Ryan Rosillo goes. I'm going to Iceland. And by the way, I told an hour and a half story in his podcast. Unbelievably, he's talking about fjords, and I go, "If you've seen one fjord, you've seen them all." Like the only movie hook to me is okay. Interstellar was shot there. Okay, cool. But anyways, Rags will be coming back to the podcast. He's going to be talking about Iceland. Back to Goddard. What they say about Iceland is like uh, it, Iceland's covered is all green and Greenland's covered in ice. Isn't that the thing? I remember. Like, is that the thing? That I actually kid. don't know like, if that's the line. Like Iceland. I don't think Iceland's actually covered in ice. Like I think Greenland has more ice than that's Iceland. That's pretty cool if that's actually true. Let me yeah, look, you this gotta look this up. Because <laughs> no, if it's true, this is fascinating. If it's not, you're going to get mocked. So you better just just, just double check because Rags is messaging. Like he's posting on his Instagram. He says it's very cold. Anyways, I'm going to go back to Breathless. You go ahead and finish this up, and I'm going to do Breathless. Here we go. 11% of Iceland's land mass is covered by permanent ice sheet. As amazing as as this is, it's nothing compared to Greenland's unbelievable 80% ice sheet cover. We got our head tile. Greenland versus Iceland. I finally got something right. 80% of it is ice in Greenland. Incredible. Uh, I will now make the segue back to this 1960 French film. Uh, Breathless. Uh, basically, the movie was, was very, very famous for its time and very influential. The jump cuts in particular. What I love about it is Godard clearly loved American movies and was making an homage to it. At one point, his character, who's a small-time thief, he goes to the movies and he's staring at a picture of Humphrey Bogart. And he kind of gives that smile on his face. He goes, ah, bogey. And it's a close-up of Bogart. So I, I just love the fact he's just so clearly tipping his hand saying, yeah, I love American gangster movies. So I'm going to make a movie with my own kind of gangster. And look, hey, by the way, here's a, a more than just a winking nod to Humphrey Bogart. And Jean-Paul Belmondo is absolutely fabulous in the lead role with the fedora, constant smoking. I mean, God, reinforcing every French stereotype. This film from, you know, 62 years ago. Chain smoking, fedora, loves the jazz, red wine, just fantastic. Good soundtrack. And, of course, the very beautiful Jean Seberg playing Patricia Franchini. At one point, my wife walked in and goes, oh, my God, she's so pretty. I said, who do you think that is? It's Jean Seberg. She goes, oh, I thought it was the other one. Who was the one that Woody Allen was with? I said, Mia Farrow. She goes, yeah, I go... She kind of looks like Mia Farrow, but it's not Mia Farrow. Anyways, John Seberg is a Mia Farrow doppelganger, and she's beautiful in the movie, and they have a great chemistry about them. And there's just so much style to the movie. If you go on HBO Max, the TCM hub, as I told you, to go watch Breathless, there's actually even like a five-minute featurette talking about the fashion of Breathless. That was so influential. Not only her wardrobe, but but his wardrobe as well. And uh, Scorsese's been widely influenced by Spielberg. I mean, if you, if you ask any of those filmmakers of the 70s, they'll tell you how much they love Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. And rest in peace to Jean-Luc Godard, dead at the age of 91. One. Some of his other films, Alphaville. Some of his other films, a little bit inscrutable, I'll be honest with you. But A Weekend, I really like. It's got this great tracking shot. That movie came out in 1967. Uh, but he definitely had more hits and misses, and obviously very, very important when it comes to film history. A couple of blurbs here. This is from Dillis Powell of the Sunday Times. In spite of the undeniable brilliance of form and style, it remains no more than a superb pattern. A pattern of dried leaves cast on the surface of water. Ouch. All right, Chris Wagner of Dallas Morning News. Breathless jumps to its own rhythm and pokes holes in its idols, even as it worships them. I like that review better. And Neely Swanson of Easy Reader. Make no mistake about it. This film still deserves its place in the canon of cinema. Great ending, by the way, too. You know where it's going, but just a beautiful tracking shot. Cobblestone Streets. The last line when he looks at her, he says, it's a great last line. I don't want to give it away. Last great line by Belmondo. He looks at her, turns away, close up. Movie ends. 90 minutes. Go check out Breathless from 1960 in honor of the late, great Jean-Luc Godard, currently available on HBO Max and the TCM Hub. All right, see how they run to Maple Leafs. Breathless gets four Maple Leafs, and now time for our special guest. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, it's a real pleasure bringing Stephen Galloway. He's written one of my favorite books of the year. It is called Truly Madly. It's all about Vivian Lee, Lawrence Olivier, and the romance of the century. He's also at the Film and Media Arts Program at Chapman University. He's the dean there as well. So clearly a guy who cares about uh, film and cares about scholastics and giving back. Stephen, first and foremost, congrats on a riveting book. I loved it. Oh, thank you so much. You know, you spend literally four and a half to five years on the book. And then it's out there and gone. So it, it means so much when somebody emails me just to say they enjoyed it. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's, there's so much good stuff. So here's what I'd like to do. It's almost like a director commentary. I'm going to read a passage and then you give me director commentary, oh, author commentary, this is, and give some little color. So the first thing that's interesting to me is if you said Vivian Lee, I think of Gone with the Wind, I think of a streetcar named Zahar, I think of a demure, petite woman, and that's not what I'm getting. Here, Olivier noted the actor Anthony Quayle was a sort of very first person I ever heard use the word fucking. As a a sort of free and easy embellishment in everyday speech. Vivian caught this trick off him, I believe. His language, he said, would have caused the hair to curl on a rocking horse. <laughs> you know, it's actually very shocking. And I remember growing up in England in the 70s, and David Putnam, who produced Chariots of Fire and had lived in America, came to speak when I was at university, and he used the F word a lot. We didn't back then, and it was shocking. So I can only imagine in the 1930s what this sounded like, you know. I mean, one actress said she'd actually never heard anybody useful, which I find hard to believe. But they both laced everything with the F word and sometimes the C word in there. <laughs> when um, Olivier was making a film uh, called Carrie with Jennifer Jones, he loathed her. She was married to David Oselznik, who produced Gone with the Wind and was their sort of mortal enemy. And he's writing, will that effing C learn to act, you know? <laughs> and this is not the Lord Olivier as we imagine him. Right. And, and to go further to that point, like they are living a fun, sexual, grown-up lifestyle. There are days of laughter and mirth. Actress Haley Mills describes the time they invited her parents, John and Mary, for <laughs> dinner with the actor Stuart Granger and his then-wife Elspeth March. It was a very dressed-up evening. People used to get dressed up to go to dinner in those days. And when my parents arrived, they were all dressed up and shown into the parent living room. And Vivian and Larry and Jimmy and Elspeth were arranged around the sofa, all of them stark naked, except for wearing a tie. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that, that story came late in my work, that very late on somebody said, do you know Hayley Mills? And I said, no, I don't. Would you like to speak to her? Absolutely, and I did. And then her sister, Juliette Mills. And it's very hard to find people today who knew Vivian Lee. You know, Vivian Lee died in the early 60s. And to find somebody who, mid-60s, somebody who actually knew her well, and they told me these amazing stories. And I remember Hayley Mills telling me, oh, you know the Thai story, don't you? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Just amazing. I think 
they both had a great sense of humor. Olivier, even though we think of him as the grand Solari, you know, his strength was as a co comedic actor. And one of the great British actors, Sybil Thorndike, who happened to be a family friend and knew him from his childhood, was asked, is he the greatest living actor? And she paused and said, he's actually the greatest living comedic actor. An extraordinary sense of timing, of finding the humor in things. And I think as he got more famous, he got trapped in this image. Um, and it's fascinating to me, you know, one of the things we all do is we look back on our lives and we create our own narrative. Yes, that was the turning point where the light bulb went off and I suddenly realized, you know, I needed to be uh, a great novelist instead of a, a baseball player, you know. But actually, memory is very um, dubious. And I noticed in interviewing a lot of people, five years they remember well, 10 years less, anything more than 10 years gets completely mixed up in their imagination. So one of the really interesting things when you're doing a book like this and you're going into the archives and you're reading diaries and letters, you actually see how people change and when they change. Olivier, as a young man, was kind of shallow. And there's a point where he's on the ship coming to America. It's 1938, he's gonna make Wuthering Heights and he runs into these other people who start telling him about the British Prime Minister Chamberlain and, and Nazi Germany and he's shocked. And he writes to them, I had no idea this was, these were bad guys. It is 1938, where were you, you know? Well, you cut to 20 years later and you read the letters and the diaries and you're talking about a much more sophisticated, also somewhat more paranoid man. Yeah. Well, I think it's fascinating. You know, I loved Ethan Hawke's just tremendous documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's such a resource that he's got all those letters. And the fact they had a book, which ended up being happening, but it gets Clooney to read Paul Newman's voice and um, uh, Laura Linney doing um, uh, Joanne Woodward's. But to that point, one of the most fascinating parts of your book are the letters. And like some of these excerpts, like they're head over heels with each other. He couldn't put Vivian aside, wrote to her daily, sometimes even more often. Scribbling impassioned letters with the zeal of any young man, head over heels for the first time. If we loved each other only with our bodies, I suppose it would be all right. I love you with much more than that. I love you with everything somehow, the special kind of soul. Sex and spirituality bounced back and forth in these letters. When Larry wasn't comparing himself and Vivian to celestial beings, he was asking her to send him her underwear. I'm sitting <laughs> naked with just my parts wrapped around your panties. Yeah, Prince Charles was not the first to have, you know, those sexual fantasies. It's fascinating. The thing I regret is, uh, but it's an amazing thing. You go into these archives. There are two great archives in London for Olivier and Vivian Lee, and you're holding the letters in your hand. Yeah. And mainly his to her, because her letters to him by and large have disappeared. But it's an amazing thing when you're in there and you're actually holding to the part of things, oh my goodness, should I be reading this? Would I want anybody to be reading my grotesquely embarrassing love letters in my 20s? <laughs> but at the same time, you see this fresh. The thing that I regret is they are littered with little drawings. Uh, he does drawings of the different stages of makeup for Wuthering Heights. He does drawings of her, of Scarlett O'Hara. He does <laughs> little doodles of people he knows. And the, the pandemic hit and the archives closed down and there was nobody there who could actually get me documents that were printable. It's such... Uh, I have a phone full of images of Vivian. You know, Vivian was born in India and grew up in the British Raj, you know, our term for the British Empire in India. Mm -hmm. 
And there are photos of the family horse and dogs and this little girl holding her dad's hand. And I couldn't, I wanted to print them because they've never been seen before. And I couldn't. Oh, we got to get a reprint or a paperback yeah. edition, something like that to get those pictures in there. I, I couldn't wait for the stuff on Clark Gable because, again, I said, all right, Steven's doing an amazing job here. He's, he's shifting what I thought of Olivier, what I thought of Vivian Lee. Okay, Clark Gable, what do I think of? Man's man, swashbuckler. Yeah. But then I think of Ken Burns' documentary on Hemingway, and I go, well, there's different sides of these guys. Yeah. We'll see. So here's we get this with Hemingway. He arrived on set with thoughts of gloom and doom. His mood only slightly improved when he found a gift waiting from Lombard, his new wife, a knitted sock to warm his genitals <laughs> with a note, don't let it get cold. Bring it home hot for me. That was generous given how she'd poo-pooed his bedroom skills to a friend. If you want to know the truth, I've had better. So was he the true ladies' man? Or was it Clark Gable a different kind of a guy? <laughs> you know, it's really amazing that... The- you know, I spent 27 years before I, I came to Chapman University as the executive editor of The Hollywood Reporter, and I did lots of profiles and celebrities. And what you learn is, that, you know, the old myth, the camera never lies, is the exact opposite of the truth. It lies all the time. And what you see is an image, and the real-life person is very different and richer, like all of us, has good and bad. And you look at these sexual icons, and you find out, well... They weren't the best lay on the planet, you know. <laughs> and clearly, Clark Gable's wife didn't think so. Vivian hated him, loathed him uh, when, when they were doing Gone with the Wind. And I actually think that made the performance better because you see a lot of love scenes where they're all lovey-dovey. With them, there's fire and fury. Yeah. By the way, real love has that too, as we all know. And i tell you one thing, though. Um, when, when Gone with the Wind premiered in Atlanta which was segregationist, and they wouldn't let Hattie McDaniel, the black actress who, who won the Oscar, come with them and stay in the same hotel. Clark Gable is the only one who refused to go and stood up for her. I really admire that. And she said to him, no, you must go. But there was a decency in him. Much as he and Vivian hated each other, there was something there that, you know, was did the right thing at the right time. Amazing stuff on Gone with the Wind. If you're a fan of the movie, you have to read this book truly madly because Stephen really goes deep into the behind the scenes. David O'Sullivan, of course, legendary producer. The fact that director got fired. Victor Fleming's involved. There's, there's lots of great intrigue and drama. And of course, it makes Vivian Lee's career. She is this ingenue whose cast ends up becoming a major star. And what is so sad about your book is just how mental illness and bipolar condition completely gripped her and just completely ruined her life. And this story in particular is just really powerful. It shows how, you know, you like to say to yourself, oh, I would be conscientious. I would be compassionate. But this is what you're dealing with, somebody yes. who's so volatile, yes. so abusive, so angry. Vivian's mood swings were now so frequent they had begun to alienate even her closest friends. My parents found her volatility very difficult to deal with, admits Haley Mills. Once they got a call from Vivian saying, where are you, darling? I never see you. Don't you love me anymore? I need you to come down. You must come now. My God, they thought. She sounds like she's not very well. They had a farm in Sussex, but they jumped into the car, drove a long way to get to Notley, and walked in the living room. Vivian was sitting by the window, and she turned her shoulder and screamed at them and picked up a bit of China and flung it at them and told them to fuck off. Like, this is a person you're dealing with who is so volatile, I couldn't imagine being around her. And imagine Olivier having to deal with this all the time. Well, I think it's a fascinating thing because I didn't know much about bipolar. And one great thing about doing a book like this and being in a university is you can call anybody the world's leading experts and say, explain this to me, or what's the latest research? And I did, you know, I called the, the heads of the bipolar disorders clinic at Stanford University, I called the head of psychiatry at Oxford University. 
there were some things that were intriguing, like what are the first signs of bipolar? When does it manifest itself? And there's a lot of belief that even though it's often not recognized for people in their late teens or 20s, there are symptoms that emerge earlier. And when I was reading Vivian's diaries as a teenager, you know, the, the ordinary adolescent musings and suddenly the handwriting changes and it's like this, well, insane person, you know, the electricity streaking across the page. And they said, yeah, often it kicks in after puberty. So it was great to get their expertise. I think a lot of people judge relationships from the outside. This guy was terrible to his wife, you know, to live with that for both of them was, was horrible. She would go on rampages that lasted not days, but weeks where she didn't sleep, where she'd be partying all night, where she'd be sleeping with strangers. And you can go, yes, I know this is my wife's illness, but to live with that, it's horrible. And meanwhile, he's reaching the point where he's decided he doesn't want to be a matinee idol. He wants to be the great Shakespearean. And the amount of work that goes into that, into thinking and learning, and he's sitting at home trying to learn his lines, you know, like, like a starting actor. To be or not to be, that is the, uh, you know... <laughs> And she's going completely crazy. And I think it's amazing they stayed together as long as they did because there was no treatment. You know, the lithium only came on the market later and uh, there was no way of, of bringing her down except giving her sedatives and actually um, electric shock therapy. And it was brutal. And... I, I, admire, I admire him for living with that, and I admire her for working ferociously and doing such great work despite it, you know. And, and my goal in the book was really to show empathy for both of them. Yeah, I found the, the characterization of Olivier fascinating. As you said, he's the great Shakespearean actor of all time. You said his greatest legacy is Richard III. I think it's Henry V. Either way, we're picking apples and oranges. They're both incredible performances. Mm -hmm. he's, he's lauded. And the work that you put in, there's one section you said he gave like a 20-minute monologue. Like it's insane, that like the level of craft and dedication. Like this guy was such an actor's actor. And if the overall emotion I kept thinking of him, Stephen, was guilt. He yes. had guilt with this relationship with this family. Yeah. He had guilt over leaving his first wife. He had guilt as a father. Yes. He had guilt over how he dealt Vivian. He, you know, yeah. had guilt with his sexuality. It may have been bisexual, may not have been. Like there, there's a lot of guilt that Olivia was yeah. dealing with his whole life. It feels like. Well, welcome to British upbringing. You know, <laughs> there's some. Um, there was a comedy in the seventies when I was a teenager in London, and the headline was "No Sex, Please, We're British." <laughs> and, you know, everything fun is bad when you grow up in the Church of England. So he had that, and his father, of course, was a, was a country priest who was a zealot and would just drive himself more and more. He kind of was a failure. His brother was a great success, became the first Lord Olivier. But Larry, as everyone called him, Larry's dad, was this driven, extreme, seeing the world in black and white figure who sort of was a cruel father. And then, of course, Larry lost his mother when he was very young. And he never got over it. He, you know, idealized her. And of course, every child, and I've seen this a lot, if they lose a parent, they blame themselves. And they think, I must have had a role here. You know, she must have left this earth because of me. Guilt never left him, even when he wrote his memoirs, which, by the way, are great. You know, they're called Confessions. And he begins, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That's a horrible thing to live with, you know. 
constant feeling of guilt and inadequacy. Yeah, he was definitely a tortured actor. And for Vivian Lee, like I said, she's living through this tortured life. She's having affairs. He's having affairs. They're all going all over the place. But then A Shriekar Named Desire, which is, it, it literally changed movie acting. It changed everything. And the stories about that was amazing. Just imagining Brando on set. I think she chastised Brando one time for showing up late. You know, he's like, okay, fine. Like, he didn't, he didn't react poorly. And the material with Ilya Kazan, who's, you know, this great actor-director. At first, they were clashing. But then they found this mutual respect and genuine love, which mm. I thought was beautiful. Yes, it's fascinating. It's amazing to read his letters to her. And his son is a, is a great screenwriter and a friend of mine. And gave me great insight into Kazan, who was one of the most complicated figures you'll ever know, who, of course... The great films like Streetcar, like East of Eden, On the Waterfront, but testified to uh, during the McCarthy era. So he's very reviled in, in Hollywood. He and Vivian got on very well after a very tough start because Kazan had directed Streetcar on Broadway. Olivier directed street, Streetcar in the West End in London. I don't think he ever really understood why it was a great play. And Vivian did. Vivian had a level of intellect that he didn't. She wanted to do it, but she also knew that to play a role that exhausting was dangerous to her mental health. And she said at one point, you know, playing Streetcar tipped me into madness. And after each performance, once it had been running for a while in London, before she did the film, she would wander the red light district and talk to the prostitutes on the streets. And, you know, when you were Lady Olivia, you didn't do things like that. And then she went with Brando. First of all, they disliked each other. He was kind of a slob. And then they became very fond of each other. They had skinny dipping parties. And one great thing is I, I was allowed to see the interviews that he did with a sort of ghostwriter when he was working on his memoirs. And he talks about, you know, I would have bedded her if I didn't feel bad about her husband. <laughs> 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 I'm sure he could have bedded anybody if he didn't feel bad about their husband, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. Like at that time, it was a different era. People having affairs like Olivier ends up being with Joan Plowright. I'm like, OK, he found love then. But then he had an affair with like an 18 year old woman. Like he, yeah. like, he just couldn't help himself. <laughs> Olivier right. changed. He went from being this extraordinary Puritan, like, don't touch me. And probably a virgin when he got married. Unhappy first marriage. Um, I, I was la laughed because the night he and his wife got married, or I guess he had sex for the first time. The next day he was so shaken, he shaved off half his mustache by accident. <laughs> you know, God knows what a foreign would make of that. But he goes from that being, as his own son said, a libertine, where once he hit middle age, he suddenly made up for it. Yeah. And he was sleeping with a lot of women and was a bit, um, a guy who preyed on women, you know. Um, Claire Bloom, the actress, hated him. But Sarah Miles, whom I adore, was 18, famous in England, was 18 when they did a film, they had an affair. And she saw that other side of him, the funny side, the scamp, the mischievous guy. I think later in his life, he got fed up of playing the role of Solari, Lord Olivier, and he wanted to go back and have fun again. And it's an amazing thing because, you know, in the late 50s, he turned his back on all that. He turned his back on this posh, former abbey that he'd converted into this grand house, Notley Abbey. He turned his back on, you know, being the Lord. And he gave up the West End and he went to the British version of Off Off Broadway. It's called the Royal Court Theatre, but, but it was not very royal. And, you know, rats scurrying around in the cellars. And he did this play that turned his career around, um, The Entertainer, where he played the seedy sort of vaudeville performer. 
And it's amazing because a failure, he played a failure. And he said to somebody afterwards, this is the real me. My God, the most famous actor on the planet, the grand Lord Olivier. And he thought himself as this seedy failure. Amazing. I love that line he has. I'm dead behind these eyes. I mean, it's just a really haunting line. It's so well delivered by Olivia. All right, a couple more here, and we'll get you out of here. Um, all I know about Peter Finch is he's incredible in network, and he died before he got to have his Oscar. Yeah. So he has an affair with Vivian Lee, and this part was crazy. You know, she's really upset. She's all over the place, and he says, "It's too late, Viv. Sorry, love." Yolanda was shaken by his coldness. Was this the real Finch? She wanted a monster of ego and hardness, or was he in fact just like every other star, ruthless in his self-absorption? He reminded me, she wrote, of the camel castrator in Tangier. <laughs> Welcome to Tangiers, who in giving a demonstration to a crowd of tourists, separate the legs of the beast, then takes a brick in each hand and goes thwack, squeezing <laughs> the animal's testicles to a pulp. Who who was oh, Peter Finch? Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, by the way, I have to say, I so appreciate the Finch children gave me the rights to quote from those different <laughs> books because I quote them a lot and they were completely on board because Peter Finch doesn't emerge looking great from that. And he was an alcoholic. At that time, they were all drinking so much, it's hard to know. Were they just big drinkers or did they really have a problem? And the Olivier's discovered him in Australia when he was a nobody. He came to London, they helped build his career, and then he went off and did a movie in Sri Lanka with Vivian called Elephant Walk, where she completely lost contact with reality. And they end up moving to L.A. In the end, she never finished the film. She was replaced by Elizabeth Taylor. And in L.A., she's going completely berserk. And Finch's wife flies out. And Vivian is screaming in hysterics. They're all living on the same roof. Heaven only knows why. But Finch at some point basically took off and left his wife to handle Vivian in her full craziness. And Vivian kept going after him. He did resume the affair. And then the bit you read where Vivian goes to see him one more time. And now he's in love with another woman. And he's cold as ice. And the woman looks and thinks, my goodness. And she, his new wife feels sorry for Vivian. And it's an interesting point, the ruthlessness of great stars. You don't, and I've interviewed many, you don't become a star by accident. You don't crave that attention and willingly enter the spotlight. You know, they're great actors and they're stars and they're two different beasts. And everything has to come second to that, you know. Uh, especially people who stay there on top and, and they can be wonderful and, and, and giving and humane, but there's also a level where I am a star, this is my job, everything comes second. And certainly Finch displayed that. And I think Olivier did, you know. Vivian didn't. Nothing mattered to her compared to him and nothing mattered to him compared to being a great actor, even if it meant eventually leaving her. It's amazing. It's an incredible book. Like I said, it's one of the best books I've read of the year. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Stephen Galloway, Dean of Chapman University's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts and the author of Truly, Madly, Vivian Lee, Laurence Olivier, and the Romance of the Century. Did you think about having the title Truly, Madly, Deeply, but you knew everybody would think that, so you go Truly, Madly, and then cut it off? Um, so it's really interesting. Finding a title is a gift. And my former boss, Janice Min, who was the great editor of The Hollywood Reporter, but, but I mean, one of the greatest editors I've ever worked with. Uh, I was talking to her, so I'm looking for a title. The original title, which I knew was always a working title, was A Pact with the Devil, because one of their friends said, and being together, they signed A Pact with the Devil. Well, that's not a great story for a type of romance, and I knew it. 
And Janice said, what about just madly? Madly is ambiguous. She was mad, but she was also madly in love. I didn't want to go with just madly because that is not my point of view. I wanted to be empathetic and show the human side of that. And then I thought truly madly shows both, you know. So I'm actually very happy with the title. Well, I think it's a great tell and you should be thrilled with the book. I encourage everyone to check it out. Stephen, this was a real thrill. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. <laughs> Hopefully we'll do many more. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Keep them coming. Yeah, I you. love the line too. You know, when Olivier says to his son, like I've done 200 parts and I know those roles better than I know myself. Like it's just so haunting the way this guy lived his life. It is, but also he changed so much, much more than she did and went from being this shallow young guy who was just sort of silly to being this brilliant actor. He wasn't when he was in his 20s, to being this older guy who was in some ways darker and wary and never wanted other people to seize his throne. And he could be very selfish and very generous. And then later riddled with illness and sad. You know, you have to be careful who you envy. Ordinary life tends to be happier than extraordinary life. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah, that's it's, it's extraordinary image when you said that illness he had, it was like you couldn't even touch it. Yeah. Like it, it literally was painful to touch yes. the man. I'm like, oh my God. He was in a coma at one point where um, he, he could hear the doctors talking about him saying, he's not going to make it. Can you imagine? And he did. The willpower. The willpower had us all about willpower. I had a gift, but it wasn't the greatest gift. Right. But he exerted an extraordinary will, and that will ultimately left no room for anything else. Yeah, that's well said. That's yeah. great. All right. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. We'll talk again. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. I mean, how great was Stephen Galloway, Cody? Some pretty good stories out of that guy. I mean, you, you, you were trying to fish me in. You were like, I don't know if Cody's yeah. into this, so I'm just going to keep talking about salacious things. <laughs> it was definitely salacious material. I hope everyone checks it out. <laughs> Truly mouth. <laughs> I thought Stephen Galloway at my point would be like, hey, you're picking all the naughty bits out of my book here. I'm like, don't worry. It's a primarily young male audience here, okay? I'm trying to get the book here sold. He liked it. He had a, he had a little <laughs> smile yeah, to he, him. He liked he's got a British, why, are you, why are you putting that stuff into the book unless you find it funny? So trust me, he's, yeah. he's got a sneaky sense of humor too but he's, he's excellent thank you so much to Stephen Galloway and of course check out his program there Chapman aspiring film students go to Chapman and go tell him hey I listen to Cinephile and I loved your book and I love the fact you talked to Adam Nuremberg and the story about animals to testicles getting thwacked um, thank you so much everybody who's always listening to Cinephile go check out see how they run next week again as I mentioned it was my brother's birthday so he said hey are you seriously going to watch a Schwarzenegger movie The Terminator is on I think Amazon Prime so next week I'm going to rewatch The Terminator the original one which I haven't seen since I was like seven years old so Cody might have to get Stu Gotts or Mike Ryan, one of these action guys on here, because I, mm-hmm. if I don't see it, and I'm sure those guys are locked in. He also suggested Predator. I think Predator might be on Hulu, which definitely Stu Gotts could go 30 minutes on that. So either way, we're doing a little bit of Schwarzenegger next week, but don't worry. Uh, all the new movies, of course, are coming out. There's lots of great films out there now, The Woman King and many others out there. So good movies coming up. And The Return of the OG, Dan Stanzik, my original producer Cinephile, he will be our special guest. He's going to do a special episode of Every Man. That is coming up next week on Cinephile. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Thank you.